Hi there. Welcome back to the Thrive Theology Podcast. This week, we are going to be wrapping up our series on the sacraments. We're going to be talking about the anointing of the sick, which is also called holy unction. We're going to be talking about marriage, and we're also going to be talking about the holy orders. So we're looking forward to finishing up this series with you, and we are going to dive right in. Before we do that, we just want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And if you'd like any more information about our show or previous episodes that we've done or blog posts, or if you just want to be able to connect with us, you can find all of that and more at thrivetheology.com. So our first sacrament today is anointing the sick. Anointing the sick happens when a person is ill or has a change in illness. They call the elders who pray and anoint them with oil. The first place we see anointing with oil in the Bible is in the Old Testament. People were anointed to their different positions with oil, including priests and Levites, prophets, and kings. In Leviticus chapter 14, verse 15, priests were to anoint the sick with olive oil. Um, And this would uh, declare somebody clean again. This would be part of the process to make them ritually clean to enter the temple after they had overcome an illness or had been healed. The passage says, The priest shall then take some of the log of oil, pour it on the palm of his own left hand, dip his right forefinger into the oil in his palm, and with his finger sprinkle some of it before the Lord. The rest of the oil in his palm, the priest shall put on the head of the one to be cleansed and make atonement for them before the Lord. Oil was used to bind up and heal wounds and skin diseases. And indeed, oil is still used today for some of those things. Um, Think of like lotion that we use on our hands for different healing. Um, Anointing in the Bible is a sign of God's favor and blessing, as well as a sign of God's giving of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to talk about the Roman Catholic perspective on anointing the sick. Um, Anointing the sick is part um, of last rites, which is the things that you do before a person is going to die. It's included in that list. Um, It does not guarantee healing. They're very clear that it does not guarantee physical healing. It is a means of imparting grace towards the person. CatholicAnswers.com says, quote, the anointing of the sick conveys several graces and imparts gifts of strengthening in the Holy Spirit against anxiety, discouragement, and temptation, and conveys peace and fortitude. These graces flow from the atoning death of Jesus Christ, for this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases. The Protestant perspective on anointing with healing is quite different. And that's because there's a lot of different perspectives on how healing is carried out in different Protestant denominations. Uh, The main camps are divided into cessationists and continuationists. So cessationists, just as a quick review, believe the gifts of the Spirit, which are tongues, healing, and prophecy, ceased with the deaths of the apostles. So healing isn't a gift a person can receive, but God can still absolutely honor prayers for healing among believers. Continuationists would say that they believe the gifts of the Spirit are still continued today and that individual believers can have different gifts. So, for example, one believer may be especially effective when praying for the sick person, though, of course, all the power of healing comes from God, not a person. There are some hyper-charismatic churches who believe that Jesus died for our physical healing on earth in addition to forgiveness of sins and that it's always God's will to heal every believer 
and that a lack of healing results from a lack of faith. And we actually talk about this in depth in our episode about Bethel, which is episode 77, if you want to check that out. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. In this passage, we see um, anointing with oil mentioned, but the real focus of the passage is prayer, confession of sins, um, and doing so in a community of faith. Note that the focus of the passage is on the confession and the intercessory prayer rather than on the oil. The phrase, the Lord will raise him up in verse 15, really has more resurrection language rather than immediate physical healing um, implications. This is a good reminder that our hope is in Christ and his purchase of our freedom from eternal death, um, not immediate physical healing. Um, Just a quick note here, we have mentioned that it is not good Bible study practice to make a doctrine based on one verse, and James is the only one in the New Testament to mention anointing the sick with oil. Um, The only other time that anointing with oil for the purpose of um, healing a sick person or helping a sick person is when Jesus sends the 12 out um, in order to preach the good news of the kingdom, to um, exercise demons, cast out demons, and to um, heal the sick and anoint them with oil. So there's only two times that this is mentioned, and it is a whole sacrament um, that is practiced in the Catholic Church and other different communities of faith around the world. Our next sacrament is marriage. So marriage is a common grace for all people given by God. It is the most common sacrament practiced around the world and throughout history. The biblical basis for marriage, of course, starts in Genesis when Eve is given to Adam as his companion and they are told to be fruitful and multiply. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, Jesus teaches about marriage and and it says this, And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no person separate. And that last phrase, of course, you probably recognize from a bajillion marriage ceremonies. (laughs) So the Roman Catholic perspective is very similar to the Protestant one. The Roman Catholic Church affirms that marriage is one man and one woman who are both free to marry, meaning they're not already married, closely related, or bound by other vows, such as um, being a nun or a monk, a member of the clergy, etc. Both people must freely choose to marry each other, and they promise to be married for life, stay faithful to each other, and the Catholic Church is also very pro-procreation. They, of course, affirm this marriage with a public exchange of vows, and marriage is a picture of the love that Jesus has for his bride, the church, and therefore it should be visible to show this picture to the world. Some denominations do not recognize divorce and use annulment instead, which is basically declaring that the marriage was never valid in the first place. Now, if you remember back to our whole denomination series, 
um, the beginnings of the Church of England or the Anglican Church, this was when King Henry VIII wanted an annulment from his first wife, Catherine, because Catherine, excuse me, because he wanted sons and he was in love with Anne Boleyn. So he threw a tantrum when he didn't get one from the Pope and made himself head of the new Church of England. So an annulment is at the basis or a request for an annulment is at the basis of the Anglican Church. That's how big a deal this is. The Protestant perspective has two camps. There's Orthodox Christianity or traditional Christianity and progressive Christianity. Orthodox Christianity affirms one man and one woman in the public exchange of vows, just like the Roman Catholic Church does. Different denominations handle divorce differently. Annulments are not used in the church, but may be with the government if certain circumstances are involved. Even if a couple legally gets divorced, the church may choose to spiritually not recognize this divorce. For example, if one spouse leaves the other for someone else, even if a legal divorce is obtained first, the church may recognize this as adultery because the divorce was not spiritually legitimate, so perhaps for the reason of adultery. Progressive Christianity affirms biblical marriage, but also homosexual relationships. We, Just a side note here, we really don't have time to get into this. Um, essentially, most progressive Christianity churches are LGBTQ affirming. Every denomination recognizes death as the end of a marriage, as well as abandonment, abuse, and adultery. last sacrament of our series is that of holy orders. So the definition of holy orders is the commissioning of a person to formal service in a church body or governmental structure by means of ordination. This is conferred by the laying on of hands of an already ordained clergy. And really it's only referred to as holy orders by the Roman Catholic church. Um, And then it's more referred to as becoming ordained in the Protestant denominations. The biblical basis for this starts with the Levitical priesthood as well as the priests of Aaron and the hierarchical structures within them. In accordance with God's will in the Old Testament, leaders of Israel appointed the next leaders. So, for example, Moses appointed Joshua to be his successor. And in Acts chapter 6, the apostles were the ones who commissioned the seven deacons when they needed people to take care of the distribution of food. A New Testament example of this would be the apostles. So in Matthew chapter 10, we read this. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So in this passage, we see that the disciples were given authority by Jesus. And some believe that this authority has been passed down in an unbroken line to the clergy we have today. This is a Roman Catholic Um, and Anglican belief. This is not something we recognize in Protestantism. They would call this apostolic authority or apostolic succession. There are some hyper-charismatic denominations who believe that apostles are still in office that exists today. For example, at Bethel in Redding, California, the senior pastor Bill Johnson is referred to as an apostle, as being the leader of that church. Most Protestant denominations recognize apostles as being only the 11 original disciples, plus Matthias, who replaced Judas Iscariot, and then Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles. 
Um, there are a couple other offices or positions. Um, one is deacons, and this is instituted in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And this says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So with a growing group of believers, the apostles couldn't keep up to the practical needs of the church and appointed believers of good reputation to oversee those matters. Deacons are people that are placed in charge of very practical matters of the church. We also have elders, um, which are mentioned in Acts chapter 14, verse 23. It says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Um, these are rulers in the individual church congregations. We also have qualifications for elders in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. So the Roman Catholic perspective on holy orders is interesting because they take it directly from the story of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist, um, basically saying that because Jesus, even though he didn't need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, um, he needed John the Baptist to help him do this. And because Jesus even needed somebody to um, assist him in being baptized, we also need someone or something else to be able to go to God. And those someones are the clergy, priests, bishops, deacons, the pope, etc., um, and though something would be the sacraments. So holy orders gives a person power over the sacred and the power to administer the sacraments. Holy orders are for life, and the person is permanently changed when a bishop lays hands on them during their ordination. Now, you can be ordained to the position of a deacon in the Catholic Church, um, and as a deacon, you are permitted to be married. There are some deacons that are just lifelong, they hold that office. But deacon is the first step up the ladder of authority. So you do deacon, and then you can do a whole bunch of study, and you can become a priest, and then a priest becomes a bishop, and the bishop then goes to the cardinal, and the cardinal goes to the pope. And you have to go all up this line in a very careful way with lots of interviews and education. Um, and it's basically being given a very, very special job to do, and you get special power from the Holy Spirit to do it in the Catholic Church. The Protestant perspective is quite different. So in most Protestant denominations, you need to have some sort of post-secondary biblical education in order to be ordained as a minister, and then each denomination will ordain their own ministers. There will be like a, a panel that, um, that will approve you for ordination and make that official. If you serve in roles such as deacon or elder in most Protestant denominations, there is no special education or anything required, but typically, depending again on the denomination, you're going to be asked to show that you have certain spiritual spiritual maturity qualities. Um, maybe they're going to focus on age and character and that sort of thing. There's a lot of variance between all the different denominations, as I said. Responsibilities of the different offices also vary between denominations. Uh, some only allow an ordained minister to lead the congregation in communion, while others have elders to do this. Some denominations also do not require any formal education in order for somebody to be leading the church. But like I said, they may focus instead on age, spiritual maturity, and character. 
I actually have a friend who attends a church that is led just by an elders board. They do not have a single senior pastor. And then the adult men all take turns teaching. So there's lots of different ways that this is done. And typically denominations choose their own qualifications. And then if you want to become ordained in a specific church, you're just going to have to check and see what their requirements are and then make sure that you're fulfilling those. So that brings us to the end of our series on the sacraments. And personally, I found this interesting and um, enlightening because I had never really done much research into it. I kind of thought we just do baptism and communion and everything else is kind of weird um, because I just didn't have any personal experience with it. So it was interesting to go and find out some of the biblical basis behind these different sacraments to see how they're practiced differently, which parts of them are given greater honor. And I really found it encouraging that there, for a lot of them, there is really good biblical backup for the way that they're practiced. And it helped me to understand the different denominations in Christendom and why they do what they do. And it reminds me that we unite around the gospel. We, we unite around, like, just like we said about baptism. If you're baptized in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, your baptism is recognized. Your baptism is recognized. Um, and that was just a really interesting thing um, to see and then to be reminded of, you know what? Yep. They practice differently, but they believe in Jesus. And if they have the essentials, we're all part of the same body. Yeah. I think what struck me just going through all of these, I mean, I've known the sacraments exist and all that sort of thing, but what struck me is that, you know, in the Protestant church belonging to a, a Baptist denomination, we really only have these two ordinances communion and baptism, but we also recognize a lot of these other things as very important and significant in the Christian faith. We just wouldn't call them one of the seven sacraments. So marriage, for example, is something that is encouraged and practiced. And it's something that as a church, as a North American church, I should say, like we hold sacred, um, but we just don't necessarily call it a sacrament if we're not Catholic. Um, anointing with the sick. That's something that our church practices. Not all churches do, but it is in scripture and it's not wrong to do that, of course. So yeah, I guess I was just kind of struck about, struck by how many of these are important to Christians and they're practiced widely, but they're not necessarily all considered to be sacraments. We have two recommended resources for you. The first is actually a, um, YouTube series, but also a YouTube channel. It's done by Matt Whitman. It's called the 10 minute Bible hour. And this is super helpful. Um, this is more of a Protestant, generally evangelical pastor. Um, he goes into all these different denominations and churches in America and just asks questions and is very respectful and gets some rapport and goes around the different, um, parts of the church and asks questions. And I just found it, he approached it so respectfully and, and like genuinely interested in wanting to find common ground and just really understand what um, these different denominations and, and churches believe. So I would highly recommend that. You could even just put it on in the background while you're doing something else just for general education. The second is another YouTube channel. I found this really interesting when I was doing my research. It's called Catholic Central. Um, it is like a fully produced show with sound effects and like dressing up and makeup and, and everything. It was really funny. They use humor to teach about different Catholic doctrines. So it was informative, educational, and also quite hilarious at times. So if you're looking for a laugh and some learning, I would check out Catholic Central 
on YouTube. That is the end of our three-part series on the sacraments. We hope that you enjoyed them and you learned something new. Um, If you did, we ask that, hey, maybe consider sharing it with a friend who might also find it interesting and insightful for their faith walk. You can talk to us about the things that you learned or things that you wish we had included or any questions that you have um, in two places. The first is our website, thrivetheology.com. And the second is our Instagram page, which is also Thrive Theology. You can find other blogs, you can find our contact info and other episodes that we've done on our website. We'll talk to you next week.